0: We are studying the book of Luke. We are in the chapter, uh, fourth chapter of the book of Luke. So if you want to start turning there, and we're, this morning we're looking at verses 31 through 37. Um, and if you would, as you're turning there, if you'll stand with me in honor of God's word as I read it for us this morning. Luke chapter 4, verses, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out, and reports about him went out into every place into the surrounding region. Take your seats. His word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. What is this word, was their question, um, for this authority and the power to command unclean spirits that they come out. In February of 1942, author C.S. Lewis published a story called The Screwtape Letters, which takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood, a junior tempter. The uncle's mentorship pertains to the nephew's responsibility in securing the damnation of a British man only known as the patient. Lewis is presenting to the reader in this book, though fictional, the realities that are grounded in the truth of Scripture that's in our text today. Those truths are, one, we have a real enemy an enemy that seeks to lead evil forces against the throne of the kingdom of God. But I would be remiss to simply blame all evil and all bad things on the devil and his minions and not mention that if we had our way, we would storm the very throne of God ourselves and claim it as our own. We see that in the earliest uh, of Genesis with Adam and Eve and their opportunity we were talking about that today in our class of uh, at no point do we see in all of the decisions that are made in the garden, do we see Adam and Eve in any way, at any time, shape or form lay down their arms and say, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, a holy God. I have uh, broken the vow that I made. I have not fulfilled what you have called me to and all the promises I have not Secured them for myself. I've looked to others to find that. At no point do you see that. You see blame. You see passing off. You see hiding. You see all of these things. And if you go on from there, it's passed generationally through their children onto us, this fallen nature. But ultimately, the word of our Lord has power and authority. Not only as we were talking about in the confession, to restrain and defeat all his and our enemies but to turn rebellious enemies like ourselves into adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, in all the study and and the reading and preparation of this, I get overwhelmed at the content, but the message is really simple. You pursue us. Your Word has power and authority And I pray that we get that, and we step out of the way of a bumbling, stumbling man, and that we would hear from you this morning. Father, may your word be a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path, in this dark and desperate hour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. If you're keeping up with us, Jesus has just come out of his hometown, Nazareth where the reception started out pretty good, but it ended with his family and friends that he spent 30 years in their midst trying to toss him off a cliff. Um, and, and as it were, uh, the will of the Father for him not to die in that way at that time, he's able to escape from the midst, and he goes back to the area that he had been to before reaching Nazareth. Uh, so geographically, you have Galilee down here, you have Nazareth kind of up on a hill, and so he's coming back down the hill into the valley here. In verse 33 of our text this morning, we read, and in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Some translations, instead of the word ha, which is always fun to read, um, it, it it says, Leave us alone. It's this idea of them pushing away. So I realized that this morning as I preach, I'm not preaching in North Korea, and I'm not preaching in Afghanistan. The reason why I mention those two places in particular, uh, they have once again been rated the first and second on the list of the top 50 places where it is the hardest to be a follower of Christ. Countries where governmental agencies spend untold resources annually to hunt down our brothers and sisters in Christ in order to systematically eradicate Christianity from within their borders. And so when you look at this and you know that this is going on in other places to our family, our kin through Jesus Christ, the question becomes, is this natural the natural state of man at work, or is this the work of Satan, the evil one, working? And the answer is yes, because man in his natural state is the enemy of God, works for the enemy of God, has the same ends in mind as the enemy of God. This example of some other place in the world um, may seem extreme because it's not the American way, Right, uh, we wouldn't dare use law or the majority to somehow infringe on the rights of others here in America. Right, that would never happen here. Um, but let me ask you the question: Have you ever shopped at Walmart on Saturday in Jonesboro? Because if you have, then you like me. If if you haven't, it's because you're smart. If you haven't, it's because you're desperate, or you just didn't know. But now you do. You've been informed. If you shop at Walmart in Jonesboro, you will see that if you're trying to park and you find a space and you cut someone off or someone steals your space, you will see this grand intentional display of people hunting you down to give you a look or to give you a facial expression or a word that they are feeling at the time. Sometimes words, maybe a hand gesture or two shaking at you. You will see this display of fallenness and brokenness as, uh, as, as our rights are infringed upon, and, and we get stirred up in the most unhealthy and unchristian sort of ways, even here. I'm very thankful for the liberties that we have as a country, um, that we don't sit here today under imminent threat of someone walking in to stop us, but don't buy for a second the lie that evil is not at work in our midst, in our community, uh, even in our church. Do not buy the lie for a second that we are somehow immune to this. In C.S. Lewis's book, um, he, he says it this way. Uh, I think we've got the quote up here, the first quote there, Paul. Um, it does not matter how small the sins are provided Um, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In our text this morning, we see Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and he finds himself, opposed by someone who's under the influence of evil. Now keep in mind, as we've studied Luke, Luke, even in chapter 4, this is not Jesus' first encounter with evil. He goes into the desert, he's prompted to go there by the Spirit, and who meets him there but the head honcho himself, the devil, who attempts to uh, pull him away from the calling that is on his life, that has marked him uh, from the beginning to be a representative, to be a mediator, for our sin, and Satan would have nothing else than to steer him away from that. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he addresses this idea of temptation uh, and evil in the world by saying it this way in chapter six, verse twelve: for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so as we think about this idea of bad things and evil and corruption, evil may wear different masks and have different strategies in different places around the world, but its goal evermore stays and remains the same, which is your complete failure, your complete demise. So sometimes the strategies can look like those in our text, but most days... It's more about keeping you away from the truth than leading you towards the lie. Lewis says it this way. um, It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their mind. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. This idea that it's not necessarily something being worked in you, is just keeping the truth out and letting your natural state take over and lead you away from truths and towards the lie. Sometimes in our culture, it feels like the lack of physical oppression that perhaps some of our brothers, we were talking about this this morning, that, that even though uh, our brothers are oppressed, even though the word of God is, is, is highly um, contested, even though they go through great lengths just to gather like we do, walking thousands of miles in different places. And, and th- I know that I was at a church that was walking 30 miles every week. And, and it kind of changes the, the chemistry and the dynamic of community, of church, where Sunday mornings we don't just pop in and pop out for a service. You come, you walk there Saturday night, you stay in a home of someone in the local church, you spend all day there, you eat three square meals that the church provides and everybody pitches into, you sleep Sunday night, and then you walk all the way home on Monday and you work Tuesday through Friday. So it changes the chemistry of what communion is uh, for these churches, and, and, the, and the reality is, is uh, what we were talking about this morning is technology and advancement has given so much, but we haven't asked the question of what has it taken away from us to be able to have cars and have cell phones where if you were to miss this sermon uh, and just say, hey, look, we'll just listen to it on the way to the lake um, on the podcast or the live feed or Facebook Live or whatever, all these technologically advances have given us so much, but we've never asked the question of What are they taking away? It appears that our physical lack of oppression in our daily lives has led us to minimize or even dismiss the idea that we have an enemy who's always working against us. Paul goes on to command the church in Ephesians 6 that we just read, put on the full armor of God. This was our call to worship this morning, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil righteousness to protect your heart and lungs. The gospel shoes that it moves where you move, the shield of faith and the sword of the word of God, the belt of truth that holds all of this together. Instead of taking up armor to battle and defend against the forces of evil as we're called to, far too often our battle is one of comfort. As we battle to get more comfortable, our defense is against anyone who may challenge And put that comfort at risk. We're living in a time where people oppose Christianity. Know more about the Bible than we do.
1: Bible literacy
0: in our time is low. And opposition is higher than it's ever been. Look at me at the latter parts of uh, Luke 4 verses 34 through 35. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. His word possesses authority. His very words possess authority. Ultimately, no matter how strong the forces may appear around us, they remain firmly fixed under the word and rule of Christ's power and authority. The ultimate answer to this demon's question, have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes. Jesus has come not only to destroy him, but crush the head of the serpent that we see all the way back in Genesis 3. This, this idea that was set in motion from the beginning of time of redemption in these, these images that we see of Jesus all time, for all time, crushing the head of the serpent and dealing with evil. The evil that has taken this man is able to acknowledge who Jesus is, where he comes from, and what he's here to do. The only thing he's unaware of is when he's supposed to do it. This is something Jesus endured over the course of his ministry. I don't know if you, like me, have seen in the gospel of Jesus as he heals someone, but then he says, don't tell anybody. Or he pulls out a demon, he's like, stop. Stop telling people who I am. Has that ever struck you as kind of a weird thing for the king of kings who's here to pronounce his reign and rule over the earth to silence people and ask them not to speak of who he is? Um, Do you ever see it work? It never really works. He's always Asking people that he's healed to not go and talk, and all they do is go and talk. Um, But every time you see this happen, uh, Jesus is restraining them. And so the question might be what's so wrong with someone who has been healed, or either a demon, acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is and what he's here to do? And I would ask you to question, to answer the question, is God precise? When you think about God and his plan, does he ever miss minor points in any of his promises on the quest to accomplish his purpose? Well, if you think about that from a theological standpoint or however you want to think about it, the answer has to be no. God is very precise. God does not leave out the finer points of anything. He, he does things as exactly how he's meant to do them, in the way, the place, the time, um, in Matthew 12:15, we see another example of Jesus healing a bunch of people, and he orders all of them not to make him known. And then he quotes Isaiah 42, explaining why not. And it says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud. This is a messianic prophecy here, talking of Jesus. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so this is what Jesus quotes here in Matthew 12 uh, to the people as he orders them not to speak. And so the idea is the plan of salvation was set before the foundations of the earth were laid. In other words, it's not, response to, it's not a response to sin and evil. God is not being reactive. He's the epitome of proactivity. He's not in a position to fear or worry about his enemies, his schemes, the circumstances we find ourselves in, or the choices we make. God wants things to lay out, and they will lay out precisely as he wants them to. Here's how this is important to us. Let's let's land the ship a little bit. You and I are not called to sit idly by and await rescue. The truth of it is in the gospel We've already been rescued. But we've also been entrusted with the ministry, which includes lovingly calling out the darkness in others and pointing them to Christ's marvelous light. Would we all agree with that? That the the scriptures teach that in multiple places, uh, at multiple times? And this is not just a strategy for how to defeat the evil one. It's more than that. Our participation... In the struggles is God's way of conforming us into His likeness. Would we agree that that's something we see in the text of Scripture? It is His design for you and I to be active in battling darkness and, and entering into the struggles of others' lives and the hardness of things that go on for us to go right into the eye of the storm with Him as our champion so that we can experience the greater degree of His joy in His presence. How often do we interact with people every day under the power and deception of sin influenced by the evil of this world? Our response to non-Christian things of the world is often anger or frustration or isolation as we see things that are non-Christian getting elevated or being done. We often want to be activists in a way of pronouncing our anger and our frustration. And we're missing all the time the power and the deception, the blindness that comes with sin. If those who are not in Christ are deceived and blinded by sin, let me ask you this. When was the last time you yelled at a blind person for their inability to see? When was the last time you cornered them and berated them with their inability to uh, function by opening doors and driving cars and knowing where their glass is on the table? when's was the last time you laid into someone for their inability to see? I hope it's been a long time. And I hope the one time was uh, in some sense a mistake. Um, and I hope it brought forth repentance um, and sorrow. We don't do it. We just, it's, just, it's just not something that you do when you know you, you, you interact with them. You go to them. You give them grace and mercy. You serve them as every way that you can. Just this idea of pity and grace. I'm just thinking about this this week as I was studying. Pity is serving someone because you feel bad about their situation. Um, Webster didn't say that. I just wrote that down. Grace is serving someone as one who understands what it truly means to be blind and deceived. And so which is it? As we think about this and we think about a world that we are called to interact with, are we pitying them? Are we operating in anger and frustration? Are we giving them grace with those who have been blind and those who understand deception and sin's masking effects? It's ones who've tasted both depravity and grace. In Lewis's book, the two fictional characters have a conversation about their cause to destroy Christianity. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy, God's will, looks round upon the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and ask why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Listen for a second. The journey of loving a holy God with our whole heart, our whole mind and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, uh, with a sort of compassion and obedience that we see modeled by Jesus, and Clint spoke of this last week, Um, will seem like foolishness to the world. And it will be impossible for us to do on our own because our tendency is to side with the world in the affairs and matters of, of piety and compassion and look to our own selves and our own storehouses rather than emptying our storehouses so that others may eat. We can't do this on our own. It starts with Christ who initiates our rescue at the cost of his life, and now has given to us the ministerial privilege of gathering others as they're awakened from blindness and deception. We're invited, with the help of the same spirit, to be spiritual older brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, to teach others how to use their real eyes, and to discern spiritual truths from the lies they have believed their entire life. And, and, I, and I call it a ministerial privilege, but let's just state the reality. It will not always feel like a privilege. Any more than the energies uh, that I often take with my sons trying to teach them to honor and respect their mother by what they say and how they act. It feels like a constant battle For them not to treat her like just some other schoolyard kid at times. And I hear them from my office and I have to step out and pull them aside to teach them to honor and respect their mother. But one day, by God's grace, when they're married, they will better know how to love and serve their wife. Not because it was a natural thing, but because they were shaped to by the word and the spirit working in tandem to help pull them to the realities of truth and away from the lies. A display of such grace towards others, such affection, such compassion towards others will have them asking, what is this word? As they asked in, in Galilee and throughout Capernaum. For with authority and power, the people of Christ Redeemer give themselves and their resources as though they need nothing in return. And reports of these people, of us, by God's grace, will go out to every place, to homes, to hospitals, to schools, to places of business, everywhere we touch. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, that we would receive this word from you this morning, that is living and active, that is able to divide joints and marrow and the intentions of the heart, is able to lead us in the path. Work in us, we pray. Work in our homes and our places of business and the uh, places you've called us to be missional, and serve, give us eyes to see those who are lost, blind, and deceived, and and a longing to, if nothing more, pray for them, actively pray that your Spirit would awaken them from darkness, and that we would have the opportunity as brothers and sisters in Christ to help instruct them as an older brother to a younger brother, as a father to a son, as a mother to a daughter, that we would join in, as you've invited us to, join into helping to establish and grow them. Father, for those this morning who have not been able to discern spiritual things, where your word is not truth, is not gospel, Father, I pray even now that they would hear this word. That you would go where we cannot, where eloquent words fall short and illustrations um, are not enough. That you would speak. You'd make us a people of your own possession, who are in love with you. And we pray all of this in Christ's name.